This is the American Tapestry Project, where we seek to weave America's many stories into a tapestry of American possibilities. Welcome back, fellow weavers, and if this is your first time, welcome. Welcome to the American Tapestry Project. I'm Andrew Roth, a scholar-in-residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Today's Lincoln's birthday. Oh, by the way, if you're listening to this later on either WQLN's or NPR's website or some other podcast site, this program first aired on February 12, 2023. Anyway, today is Abraham Lincoln's birthday, which, like George Washington's next Wednesday the 22nd, we no longer celebrate. Both of them subsumed into President's Day by the Uniform Holiday Act of 1968, which began with the good idea of creating three-day weekends and ended up not honoring presidents at all. Now, now we celebrate President's Day as a holiday, which this year is Monday, February 20th. It allegedly honors all presidents and effectively honors none. It's one of my pet peeves. It does. It does, however, according to the National Retail Federation, it does sell a lot of major appliances and mattresses, mattresses being President's Day's biggest seller. Who knew? Well, all of that got me thinking about the U.S. presidency, American presidents, both the great and the the all-not-so-great. John Dickerson says it's the hardest job in the world, the U.S. presidency. In fact, he wrote a book by that title in, in which he's at some pains to justify that claim. I don't know if it's the hardest job in the world, but it might be the most dangerous. Doing some arithmetic this morning, of the 47 occupants of that august position, four or about 8.5%, have been murdered in office. The polite word is assassinated, which somehow obscures the fact we're talking about murder. Another two have been wounded in assassination attempts. Former President Theodore Roosevelt, the, the Rough Rider, in his 1912 Bull Moose Comeback campaign bid, and, in 1981, President Ronald Reagan. A laundry list have been targets of plots to murder them, beginning with Andrew Jackson and running through William Howard Taft, Herbert Hoover, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford. Remember Squeaky Fromm, the Charles Manson follower who pulled a handgun on Ford in a handshake line? And even Jimmy Carter, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump have had their lives threatened. Adding them up, That's 18 or 38% of U.S. presidents have either been murdered in office, wounded, and or targeted by credible assassination plots. And if you're noticing, the tempo has picked up in recent decades. Shakespeare knew. In Richard II, he has the king lamenting his fate as the target of enemies. For God's sakes, Richard says, for God's sakes, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings how some have been deposed, some slain in war, some haunted by the ghosts they have deposed, some poisoned by their wives, some sleeping killed, all murdered. Later, we'll hear Sir John Gilgood reprise those lines far better than I can mutter them. Well, Shakespeare aside, well, all of that got me thinking about the U.S. presidency, and in particular, those last five presidents I just named, all of whom are baby boomers. Clinton, Bush, and Trump are core boomers, 
born in 1946 and graduating from college in 1968, they exemplify by age and youth experience what, what most people think about when they think about baby boomers. But Barack Obama is also technically a boomer, and some would want to bestow that honor, <laughs> that stigma, upon Joe Biden. But Biden, while not a member of the greatest generation, the boomers' parents, Biden is probably several two years, several years too old to qualify. But First Lady Jill Biden, she makes the cut. Our boomer presidents, none of whom is exactly draped in glory, got me thinking about baby boomers and what they have or have not done to political culture in American life, and, for that matter, what boomers have or have not done to American life and American culture in general. That thought brought to mind the internet meme circulating a few years ago, okay, boomer, and Generation X and Generation Z's claim that the, that the boomers broke America. I asked myself, did they? Maybe. Or at least Bruce Cannon Gibney, in his book, Generation of Sociopaths, How the Baby Boomers Betrayed America, Gibney thinks they did. Well, that gives me today's program. That gives me this episode of the American Tapestry Project in which we'll explore We'll explore those two questions. Is the American presidency the hardest job in the world? And did the baby boomers break America? That's today on the American Tapestry Project. What's the hardest job in the world? Not exactly a trick question. As I said a moment ago, according to John Dickerson, it's the American presidency. Dickerson, among several other gigs at CBS, Dickerson anchored CBS News's primetime and is a former anchor of CBS's Face the Nation. Dickerson makes that assertion in a sprawling book, a book that itself is a metaphor for the very claim it asserts awash in information providing a global view of the American presidency's origins and its evolution into some overwrought version of an elected monarch, Dickerson's book's chief value rests in the brilliance of several of his observations, one of which is not the idea embedded in the title, The Hardest Job in the World. It's not. There are, there are multiple contenders for that honor. I nominate Pediatric Oncologist, compared to which just about any other job you can name is, well, is the proverbial skate. The hardest job in the world also smacks of American exceptionalism, the notion that has bedeviled America from, well, from almost the beginning. The idea of American exceptionalism asserts that America differs qualitatively. It differs qualitatively from other developed nations because of its national credo, its historical evolution, and its distinctive political and religious institutions, all of which, all of which results in American assertions of America's categorical superiority over all other nations. At its most noble, 
American exceptionalism is the sentiment expressed in Abraham Lincoln's oft-quoted description of America as the last best hope of Earth. At its most jingoistic, it is any of many claims that America is the richest, the freest, the strongest nation in the world, including the assertion that the American leader's job is the hardest job in the world. Still, there's no arguing that the American presidency is a difficult, if not a fraught, job. It's a cliché to remark upon how its occupants dramatically age during their tenure. Entering relatively fresh-faced and eager, they leave with their hair gray, their faces creased with stress lines. All leadership positions tax and test their occupants. In particular, the ones that tax and test the most are those jobs which which most seethe with the stress and rely upon a leader's political skill in balancing competing interests and in, and in selling others their vision. Ask any mayor, or university president for that matter, how hard their job is. If they're candid, which usually only occurs in retirement, you might be surprised. Whether or not the American presidency is the most difficult job in the world, it's a very, very, very difficult job. The scale of its responsibilities daunts awe, but the most egotistically self-assured. In fact, although I no longer recall which presidential candidate said it, in, in one of Theodore H. White's The Making of the President's books, a presidential aspirant is alleged to have remarked, while looking out the window of an airplane flying over the American heartland, that presidential candidate allegedly remarked, it takes a big ego to think you're the one who can lead this vast land. He, it was a he, he implied that maybe an ego so large might not be a healthy thing for either its possessor or for the nation they would lead. It's possible that the scale of the job might be beyond any one person's ability, a case Dickerson in his book is at some pains to make. Fiona Hill, who spoke at the Jefferson Educational Society Global Summit in November 2022, Hill noted that the American presidency combines, combines at least three jobs other nations divide. Head of state, commander-in-chief of the military, and chief executive officer, CEO. At the very least, those jobs require entirely different skill sets, not to mention aptitude, depth of knowledge, and breadth of vision. The head of state embodies the nation's values, beliefs, and, one hopes, its virtues. The commander-in-chief is the Democratic Republican, which does not refer to political parties but refers to our form of government, a form of government in which the commander-in-chief is also the warrior chieftain. Once upon a time, it was the role one must have mastered to become head of state. Vestiges of that ancient lineage well, vestiges of that ancient lineage still linger in the public's consciousness. The chief executive officer is the person who manages, who manages the vast enterprise that is modern government. So, one needs to find a warrior with an MBA who also embodies those truths Americans claim to be self-evident, a belief in the equality of all and their right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Oh, it doesn't hurt if they're also empathetic, good-looking, quick of wit, cordial and glib, and as comfortable in their rectitude as the couple in Grant Wood's American Gothic. 
Dickerson writes that if you want to be president, you need to combine the traits and skills of executive-in-chief, commander-in-chief, first responder, consoler-in-chief, and action hero president. Looking at that list, well, maybe. Maybe it is the hardest job in the world. It's not the job requirements that make the American presidency so daunting. It's the scale of the enterprise, the sheer number of duties, the sheer number of duties the president is tasked with making make sense that swallows those who undertake it. Why? Why do Americans obsess over who is or who might become president? Henry Ford, not the automobile titan, but a late 19th century historian, Henry Ford remarked in 1898, The truth is that in the presidential office, as it has been constituted since Jackson's time, American democracy has revived the oldest political institution of the race, the elective kingship. As Shakespeare's Richard II could tell you, being king, being king might be nice, but as Richard sat upon the ground telling sad tales of the death of kings, he would also tell you it comes with sharp edges surrounded by ambitious people bearing knives. Some, some even pretend to be your friend. As I noted earlier, Shakespeare has it in Richard II, Act Three, Scene Two, lines 155 to 170, if you're counting, in which the king, upon his return to England, learning of his encroaching defeat, says, well, I quoted it earlier, but here's a better version with legendary actor Sir John Gilgood from his LP, Sir John Gilgood in his greatest roles. This is John Gilgood's take on Richard II. This is Sir Ralph Richardson introducing Gilgood. And now let us hear the speech on the king's return from abroad to England when he hears his subjects are in revolt. For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. How some have been deposed, some slain in war, some haunted by the ghosts they have deposed, some poisoned by their wives, some sleeping killed, all murdered. For within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court. There the antic sits, scoffing his state and grinning at his pomp, allowing him a breath, a little scene, to monarchize, be feared and kill with looks, infusing him with self and vain conceits. Well, the president and his king might sound fanciful, but as our short recounting earlier of assassination attempts and successes, it's neither irrelevant nor nor out of the question. Less melodramatically, the monarchical metaphor helps us understand both the pressures a president encounters and, paradoxically, the fears of those who elect him. Those fears come in two flavors. One is as old as the republic, the other only sprouted in the past 30 to 40 years. The old fear, the old fear was the founder's fear of giving the chief magistrate, as they originally called the office holder, of giving that person too much power for fear he would evolve into a monarch, which, of course, they had only just cast off. 
The other fear results from the fact that, so far, it has only been a he. Americans embrace patriarchy with ever actually or without ever actually acknowledging it. For many Americans, matriarchy remains a step too far. But that sentiment might be weakening. Hillary Clinton did win the 2016 popular vote by more than 3 million votes, and of the names now being considered as possible successors to President Joe Biden, several women are near the top of the list. Most Americans, however, are content to let monarchy be a a British reality TV show. Beyond the office's obvious importance in the nation's political life, there are two interrelated reasons for Americans' sometimes obsessive focus on the presidency. First, and this has been true since the Washington administration, the presidency is the perfect media foil. It makes the job of gathering news easy, a sort of one-stop shop for ambitious reporters under deadline pressure. Rather than doing the hard work of deep background digging, they can get a story just by reporting happenings at the presidential office. At first, in the world of print, it was tedious, but that accelerated in the 19th and early 20th centuries only to be eclipsed by the speed of electronic media with its bias for the immediate and visual. 21st century social media takes it to its logical, illogical conclusion with instantaneous tweets making presidential news now a perpetual motion, a perpetual emotion, well, in any event, a perpetual motion machine. Obviously, it's more complicated than that, but in either a virtuous or a vicious circle, news of happenings emanate from the White House to be reported, analyzed, digested, and regurgitated by various media pundits, whose reports then spawn reactions from the administration as each feeds on the other. Sometimes you don't even need happenings. You just need to gather a group of bloviating talking heads on Sunday morning, or in the noxious weeds of cable news networks, it can be any day or night of the week, and they then speculate about what might be going on, and why it might be going on, and what it might or might not mean. That they might be only marginally more informed than their audiences of profound, but usually unnoted importance. I was about to say ironically, but maybe it's not at Maybe it's not ironic at all, but the the natural finale of an old, old process. Former President Donald Trump represented either the apotheosis or the abyss, depending upon one's point of view, of the entire phenomenon as he allegedly watched TV news all day for affirmation of his worth, feeding his vanity, or for hints of criticism, feeding his fragile ego's anger. Why is this true? Why do we obsess so over the presidency and presidential elections? If the first reason is the presidency's role as the perfect media foil, then President John F. Kennedy identified the second reason for our national obsession in remarks he made, interestingly enough, somewhat confirming my media foil comments, in remarks Kennedy made at the National Press Club in January 1960. Kennedy noted... Only the president represents the national interest. Only the president represents the national interest. Kennedy continued, Upon the president alone converges all the needs and aspirations of all parts of the country, all departments of government, all nations of the world. Kennedy added that in our federal system, 
presidential elections are the only national plebiscites, the only national voting opportunities in which the American people, the we the people who founded the U.S. Constitution and who hold certain truths to be self-evident, in which the American people in which the American people can express their opinions and preferences. It's a point, it's a point not often consciously noted. Presidential elections are the, are the only national election. All, all others are local, either very local, as in townships and counties, or only a bit more general in statewide contest. Regarding national offices, congressional representatives are local elections, U.S. Senators are statewide elections. Only the presidency is contested nationally. And, in that fact, two phenomena converge. One, it's the only time the American people get to speak as a nation. Secondly, all of that energy is focused upon a very small subset of people, only one of whom emerges victorious. Upon the shoulders of the victor, Upon the shoulders of the victor falls all the hopes, aspiration, fears, and dreads of the American people. Whether or not that makes the job the hardest in the world is irrelevant, but it makes the job of supreme importance to the American people and to the future of the American experiment. In his book, the hardest job in the world, John Dickerson asserts that recent presidents, maybe most presidents, have not been up to the task. In some instances, it's because they were simply not up to it, but in most instances, it's because almost no one can measure up to that challenge. Let me repeat that. Almost no one can measure up to the presidential challenge. Dickerson suggests of the 47 people who have held the office, only about one in six of them met the challenge. George Washington, James Polk, Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, and maybe Ronald Reagan. Why? Dickerson thinks a major part of the problem confronting the American presidency is the disconnect between the presidential campaigning, the disconnect between presidential campaigning and the, the job's actual responsibilities. Regarding responsibilities, the job is obviously a leadership job, but Americans frequently elect competent campaigners and incompetent leaders. What's the disconnect between campaigning and leadership? The first is an extended exercise in selling oneself. The latter is an extended exercise in visioning and team building. Two very different things. The former is much like a job interview. The latter, much like doing the job. Dickerson's analysis reminded me of a personal experience. Some years ago, the institution at which I worked hired a new provost. I was part of the team making the selection. At a dinner for the ultimate candidate, I and the others were wowed by his poise, knowledge, and communication skills. He was hired. He got the job. We never saw that person again. On the job, he was an utter failure lacking vision, team-building skills, and one of the worst public speakers I think I've ever heard. But boy, he was a fabulous interview. Recent presidential elections have had some of the same flavor. Campaigning involves large doses of posturing and performing. Although that has been true since the beginning, think Andrew Jackson and Old Hickory or Honest Abe Lincoln or Rough Rider Teddy Roosevelt, 
Dickerson aptly describes how the electronic media intensifies the phenomena, proving the truth of Roger Ailes' famous quip after Richard Nixon's 1968 victory. Because of the power of TV, Ailes opined that Nixon would be the last politician elected president. All the rest would be entertainers. We talked about that in the very first The American Tapestry Project episode, America in 1968, which you can find on Spotify and other podcast sites. Who can say Ailes was wrong? Electing entertainers, whether reality TV stars like former President Trump or presidential candidate Bill Clinton playing a saxophone on the Arsenio Hall show, the American people have often not elected leaders. Dickerson provides a primer on leadership that, at times, gets bogged down in secondary characteristics, as he neglects to note that a leader's primary responsibility is to define a vision for the future, to articulate a path to its achievement, and to inspire followers to join in the pursuit of its attainment. Dickerson is spot on, however, when he says as a manager, a leader's essential job is to build a team, to differentiate between what needs to be done and what would be nice to do, and to be the decider. Regarding team builder, Dickerson evaluates presidents by the caliber of those who work for them. It's like the old leadership training notion Peter Drucker identified. A people hire A people. B people hire C people or lower. You can measure leaders by the quality of the people around them. Dickerson is also very astute in discussing President Eisenhower's decision-making four-quadrant system. Eisenhower was very shrewd in making the distinction between knowing what's important and what's not, knowing what's urgent and what's not. Well, knowing those distinctions defines whether or not a leader will succeed. Dickerson's analysis of Eisenhower's system and various presidents' success or failure revealed by it, well, it's almost worth the price of the book alone. What's to be done uh, to fix Americans' current tendency to elect entertainers and not leaders? Dickerson provides a cafeteria menu of ideas and options, but the most important boil down to three things. Fix the primary system, fix Congress, and... Learn, remember, remember how to act like Benjamin Franklin. Regarding the primary system, I couldn't agree more with Dickerson. Most Americans think the primary system an ancient aspect of American elections. In part, in part that's true, but the full-blown primary system we are now burdened with is actually less than 60 years old. It's one of the offsprings of America's Year of Horrors, 1968. I've discussed it before in a number of book notes available on the Jefferson Educational Society website, discussed it during my presentations at the Jefferson Society on America in 1968, and it's discussed at some length in the first five to six episodes of the American Tapestry Project, available at many podcast sites. In a super-condensed summary, in pursuit of a more participatory democracy, the post-1968 Democratic Party instituted direct primaries in order to thwart the smoke-filled room's influence and to empower the people. The Republican Party, not sensing the danger, went along. The result was the ironic empowerment not of all of the people, but of each party's most passionate and dedicated wing, those who always vote, euphemistically called the super-voters. Sounds benign. In some ways it is, in others, not so much. 
It results in a purity of party policy that coalesces around the edges, squeezing out the middle. But the middle and the art of compromise are what the American system was built upon. Jay Koss did a brilliant job describing that in his recent biography of James Madison I reviewed in yet another book note available on the Jefferson website, www.jeserie.org. The challenge we now have, the challenge we now have in electing presidents, is how to get back to that centrist, consensus-building approach to politics in which actual politicians who know how to get things done once again can have a chance against the entertainers of the right and the left flouting their angertainment. Dickerson argues for a return to sausage-making. Sausage-making. It's reminiscent of Bismarck's famous line that the law is like making sausages. Uh, To truly appreciate it, it's better to not see them being made. Well, whatever. What Dickerson means by sausage-making, well, what he means is to bring back some version of the smoke-filled room in which those who know what needs to be done can once again have a voice. In short, we need to devise a system that involves both primary elections and some restraining system that tempers primaries' inherent bias towards each party's extreme edges. Dickerson has some centrist ideas about how that might be done, including open primaries, ranked choice voting, and other tactics promoting compromise, which was once the genius of American politics. Dickerson also advocates fixing Congress so it can resume its position as a co-equal branch of government, which is really an argument for taming the beast of partisan gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is old. It is named after Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, a Federalist period political who mastered the art of designing congressional districts to get the results he wanted. How to fix gerrymandering is complicated, for it requires not one solution but 50, one for each state. Nonpartisan commissions have worked in several states, but the challenge remains. Neither party seems particularly eager to engage with the issue. Why is each party sluggish about fixing this issue? Probably because they've forgotten, if they ever knew, Dickerson's third solution, which is to act like Benjamin Franklin. We discussed this last spring in episode number 20 of the American Tapestry Project when we reviewed the life and career of Benjamin Franklin hiding in plain sight. What does it mean to act like Benjamin Franklin? It means to be civic-minded and public-spirited. It means to work for the common good. And it means to remember and remembering to master the art of compromise. Franklin was the embodiment of all those foundational American virtues that extreme primaries and gerrymandering have driven out of the public square. For Franklin, the pursuit of the common good that profited all Americans meant sacrificing some of one's own, of one's own selfish interest. In his inimitable, folksy way, this most sophisticated of Americans understood that the common good required, like any good joiner, a joiner is a carpenter, Like any good joiner, seeking a tighter fit, shaving a bit from this side and a bit from that side so that the joint will be stronger to the benefit of all. It's the art of compromise that Madison believed to be the soul of American politics.
Jimi Hendrix, The Star-Spangled Banner. Well, it's an open question whether the American presidency is the, the hardest job in the world, and it's an equally open question, did the boomers break America? I don't think they broke it. It's not broken. But it'd be fair to say they left, they're leaving it, with a cascade of challenges. This whole thing about typecasting generations gets old very quickly, but you have to admit there's some truth to it. There are, in fact, some insights to be gained. For example, Generation Z, the grandchildren of the boomers, now there's a thought, Gen Z comes in for some criticism, and millennials, well, they've taken any number of shots for their, for their preciousness. But still, looking at American history from a generational perspective, that, well, that can yield some insights. And the boomers, all 75 million of them, well, they left their mark. Some would say they left their blemishes. One of those marks often associated with boomers, fairly or unfairly, accurately or not, it might be the boomers' defining mark. One of those marks is, or actually there's two of them, two of those marks are the 1960s counterculture and its bizarre twin neoliberalism that sprouted in the 1970s. After one of my talks about America in 1968, the far side of the moon and the birth of the culture wars, an audience member asked me, whatever happened to the counterculture? By which, by which she meant the sex, drugs, and rock and roll contingent who had their apotheosis in August 1969 at Woodstock, and their aha, this is some serious stuff moment at the Altamont Speedway in December 1969. At Woodstock, Jimi Hendrix closed the festival with a rendition of the Star Spangled Banner we just heard a clip from. That rendition allegedly changed the world. It didn't. At Altamont, the Hell's Angels murdered, it might have been self-defense, a concert-goer attempting to climb on the stage as the Rolling Stones played on, in either their own Marie Antoinette moment, or they played on in a feeble attempt at crowd control. Regardless, it did change the world, kinda, for it signaled the end, maybe the beginning of the end, of the peace and love era as flower power wilted under the pressure of the real. The real has a way of doing that. Frankly, not listening to the question with the seriousness it deserved, I hastily answered, they lost. I was wrong. Continuing my research into America in 1968 and its consequences, Smithsonian Magazine said it was the year America shattered, I began to ask, is there a direct connection between the 60s, do your own thing and I gotta be me, and the 70s, me decayed, and the 80s, greed is good. The answer? The answer is yes. Because the counterculture, or maybe more accurately, certain of its core ideas and attitudes, the counterculture won. I'd like to tell you that this is a purely original observation on my part, but it's not. As long ago as August 23, 1976, in a New York Magazine article, Novelist Tom Wolfe coined the phrase, the me decade. Whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong, whether I find a 
a place in this world or never belong I gotta be me I gotta be me What else can I be but what I am I gotta be me In the article the me decayed in the Third Great Awakening, Wolf described, or at least some 60s versions, of what we might now call woke Americans' attitudes shifting away from the social responsibility and political activism to a hyper-individualism and self-absorption, I gotta be me, chanting on and missing the point, as Joan Didion would have told them, at Ersatz Isolan workshops littering the landscape. Working the same terrain, but with considerable less glibness, David Brooks in his Bobos in Paradise, The New Upper Class and How They Got There, fused the words bourgeois and bohemian into Bobos, who wanted to have it and managed to get it both ways. Hedonistic, countercultural, artistic, all the while at the same time, being white-collar capitalist with a vengeance. Brooks describes his Bobos driving Volvos, wearing Birkenstocks, doing yoga, shopping at Whole Foods, sending their children to Montessori, pursuing this or that do-good opportunity, all the while pursuing the most rapacious capitalistic aims. They believe, or want to believe, that America is a meritocracy, that they are the meritocrats who have earned their cosseted place in American society, all the while ignoring like the mud-splattered concert-goers in Max Yasger's fields at Woodstock, the immense privileges with which they were born, chief amongst which is generational. As boomers, they enjoy, they enjoy, they enjoyed the immense privilege of having been born at the exact moment when American society reached its apex, the post-World War II economic boom that lasted from 1946 until 1970. It wasn't only an economic boom, for America today is much richer than post-war America, but post-war America not only had an economic boom, it was also a socio-political cultural moment of unchallenged ascendance. Indeed, there were clouds, the threat of nuclear annihilation, the Soviet menace, Sputnik, some exotic skirmish in Southeast Asia on the fringes of national awareness, unfinished civil rights issues at home, but for the moment, it was an America in which, as the old song had it, everything was coming up roses and only promised to get better and better. It didn't. Bruce Gibney's a Generation of Sociopaths, How the Baby Boomers Betrayed America, fleshes out Wolf's protean insight, explaining in much finer granularity than Brooks's exactly how the boomers broke America. Perhaps more importantly, Gibney illustrates its consequences for successor generations, leading to the millennials, okay, boomer, calling, calling the debt due. The nature of the debt, how it accumulated, and how it might be rectified are, paradoxically, some of his book's strongest yet least readable sections. With copious, if not smothering, data, Gibney, as Jane Smiley said in a review in The Guardian, Gibney drives home his essential point that, by refusing to make the most basic and fairly minimal sacrifices to manage infrastructure, address climate change, and provide decent education and health care, the boomers have bequeathed their children a mess of daunting proportions. Gibney details that mess in exquisite detail, sorting out how, at the core of America's economic engine, financial manipulation replaced 
replaced knowing how to get things done. It's similar to an argument David Halberstam made in his book, The Reckoning, in which he describes the history, or the at that time, it was the 1980s, the demise of the American automobile industry because of the triumph of uh, in the career climbing ladder of finance guys over actually people who knew how to build and make things. In any event, Gibney details uh, that mess, as I've said earlier, but he also describes how several decades of underfunding education has created not only a school-to-prison pipeline in America's inner cities, but also an eroding educational system in its suburban and exurban gardens. How eroding family life amidst a culture of divorce fractured the American family and how the self-annihilating impact of a consumerist society in search of never-ending pleasure has, in Neil Postman's memorable phrase, led Americans to amusing themselves to death. Speaking of amusing ourselves to death, today is February 12th. Not only is it Lincoln's birthday, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Recently, there was an internet meme floating about quoting George Orwell's line in 1984, Give them football and beer. They'll be easy to control. By the way, in the upcoming March episode, we'll begin a series looking at sports in American society. Sports in America. The games people play. Did you know that Super Bowl Sunday is the seventh highest rated holiday for consumer spending? And it's climbing higher. Well, let's get back to the main thread of today's program. In short, as Gibney describes in his book, and as I have described in multiple presentations, in short, the core 60s values that have survived are variations of the, if it feels good, do it ethos, characteristic of the cliched images of hippies, an odd, now old-fashioned sounding word, of hippies smoking dope, getting down, in all senses of the phrase, and reveling in whatever. There is, however, In the third decade of the 21st century, an intriguing variation. For those bobos now sipping wine and maybe smoking the odd joint or enjoying their CBD oil, getting down and reveling are not the same boomers, are not the same boomers who 50-some years ago wanted to change the world. I'd like to build the world a home and furnish it with Those boomers, the world changers, they're still with us. They're still trying to save the world, whether as teachers, social workers, ministers, and caregivers. They're leading things like art museums and symphonies, voting leagues and soup kitchens. They might even be your child, your grandchild's youth soccer coach. And that it's soccer and not football or baseball might be more than a coincidence. We'll take that up in one of those future episodes on sports in America, games people play. These I want to teach the world to sing boomers, however, they've been co-opted by their generational siblings. Let's call it the Revenge of the Nerds. How did that happen? At the outset, it's important to note that baby boomers, like any generation, are not homogeneous. Boomers come in a number of flavors, beginning with who exactly qualifies as a baby boomer. The conventional definition is 
those born between 1946 and 1964. That group, however, subdivides between Vietnam-era boomers born between 1946 and 1955. Some people will even limit it to 1953 because they were draft-age eligible at the height of the Vietnam War. Those born between, let's say, 1956 and 1964, well, they were too young for the war and the draft, making their experience qualitatively different than their older siblings. That lack of angst, that lack of angst, however, might partially explain the right-leaning tilt of the younger cohort. Gibney, in his book, backdates the oldest boomers to 1940, but mm, that's a weakness in his argument, allowing him to claim boomer status for some latter-day war hawks like Dick Cheney, born in 1941, and scorched-earth politicos like Newt Gingrich, born in 1943. It also makes President Biden a boomer. He isn't, but his wife might be. Boomer dates, however, are a quibble. More important is that even amongst those born between 1946 and 1964, there's more heterogeneity than generally recognized. Of that immense cohort, roughly 75 million people, most estimates are the percentage that were countercultural in the sex, drugs, and rock and roll sense, or were political activists protesting Vietnam, protesting for civil rights, or just protesting for looser campus intervisitation rules is around, well, best estimates say 15%, and sometimes as low as 5%, or even a scant 1%. These are all guesses. The point is that the hardcore counterculturalists were small in number, but they had legions of imitators and free riders. Who? The real counterculture... Gibney doesn't overtly argue, but clearly demonstrates, turned out to be the straight kids, by which I, by which neither he nor I mean sexually, but they probably were, the straight kids who knew a good time when they saw it, who wanted to get in on the party, and who then welded, do your own thing, and if it feels good, do it, who welded that to right-wing political dogma, some half-digested Ayn Randian libertarianism, Goldwater Reagan hyper-individualism and anti-government sentiment, which they shared with their left-leaning fellow boomers, and, as Kurt Vonnegut would have said, hey, presto, you have the Republican ascendancy. To be fair, Democrats, once they caught on, although they had reservations about tax cuts, some lingering but easily sidestepped concern about how do you pay for all of this, well, they quickly joined the spend-and-borrow brigades, which is to say... Bill and Hillary, W. Newton, even their Trumpster are the obverse and reverse of the same coin. It's more complicated than that. But the above scenario combined with a revived neoliberalism has dominated the politics and economics and cultural values of the past 40 years. I'm admittedly oversimplifying, but neoliberalism is a difficult term that deals primarily with economics and free markets. It also has policy implications for bridging politics, social studies, and economics, seeking to transfer control of economic factors to the private sector from the public sector. Although he does not do a particularly good job defining neoliberalism, Gibney, who I would describe as a recovering libertarian, does an excellent job tracing America's rightward tilt through the administrations of Reagan, Bush 1, Bill Clinton, not a liberal but a center-rightist, Bush 2, and Donald Trump. Barack Obama was a partial holdout for an older liberalism, but on balance, he could not stem the neoliberal tide. Gibney does an excellent job tracing the counterculture-infused, rightward arc of America's three boomer presidents. Bill Clinton, 
George W. Bush, and Donald Trump. All born in 1946, all graduated from college in 1968. None served in Vietnam. In fact, none served in the military, having perfected their generation's artful dodging. Draft dodging, that is. To be fair, W. was in the Air National Guard, whose meetings he allegedly had difficulty showing up for. But, as anyone who lived through the era knows, serving in the Air National Guard was a privileged form of draft dodging. Clinton, who famously sought a middle way between conservatism and liberalism, ended up muddled and mired in scandal. Bush, too, promised compassionate conservatism, adding prescription medicine benefits to Medicare, but his compassion, if not his conservatism, ran aground in Iraq. Trump is not really a conservative, but more an opportunistic populist opposing immigration and ingratiating himself to his evangelical base, who themselves are a curious offshoot of 60s spiritual yearnings. So centrist Clinton to rightist Bush to opportunist Trump. Regardless of how you dice it, those boomer presidents, not exactly Lincoln, Washington, and Roosevelt. great insight then, much like Brooks's and much like I have said on other occasions on the American Tapestry and other presentations, Gibney's great insight then is that the convergence of the 60s, do your own thing, and if it feels good, do it, ethos, with a resurgent neoliberalism, anti-government political philosophy, and exaltation of the individual at the expense of the common good, while all of that has led to a half-century of neglected infrastructure, military adventurism, eroded social mores, and an exploding national debt. In short, metaphorically speaking, the Students for a Democratic Society's Port Huron statement pivoted right, and here we are. Time does not permit detailing Gibney's analysis of boomer voting preferences, but baby boomers as the largest demographic cohort Those preferences, their preferences, drove everything from Nixon's establishing a draft lottery to the 26th Amendment granting the vote to 18-year-olds, to Reagan's Morning in America election in 1980, to all stops in between, to Boomer Trump's defeat of baby boomer and former Goldwater girl Hillary Clinton in 2016. Ironically, the book's least satisfying part is its sociopathic metaphor, not for the lack of its aptness, but because Gibney insists on beating it to death by constant repetition. Nonetheless, there's enough truth in the metaphor's central conceit to make even a marginally attentive boomer squeamish. Using the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, Gibney connects every boomer value and resultant activity to sociopathic behavior. As, for example, failure to conform to social norms, as in the sexual revolution, Impulsivity failure to plan ahead, as in the need for instant gratification requiring relentless debt-fueled private and public spending. Irresponsibility, including failure to honor financial obligations, as in public debt transference to future generations and private bankruptcy as an accepted business strategy. Lack of remorse, as in refusal to give up unsustainable pension benefits damn the cost to other social needs. Conduct disorder, 
deceitfulness, hostility, risk-taking, impulsivity, and irresponsibility. Where to begin? How about dallying with interns in the Oval Office, lying as a matter of strategy, and politics as a beggar-thy-neighbor proposition? How did the boomers become boomers? Well, for one thing, the boomers didn't create the counterculture. That was created by those in the greatest generation who wanted to bebop, to hit the road, to find their true selves by fleeing the world of the gray flannel suit. Think Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Gary Snyder, and the great jazz artist and abstract expressionist painters of the 1940s and 1950s, and forget for the moment Baba Ramdas, who wasn't a boomer, and think of Alan Watts in The Way of Zen. No, the boomers didn't invent the counterculture, but they grabbed onto the trends ignited by those I just named, married them to the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, and, bingo, counterculture one had. Forget for a moment the counterculture, but boomers became boomers because of a melange of reasons, including the greatest generation's permissive parenting, the impact of TV, unprecedented levels of prosperity creating an illusion of safety, rock and roll music, transistor radios, and loosening social and sexual amores. Still, the question needs further refinement. Gibney deserves credit for going back to its roots in 18th century romanticism. There's still work to be done here trying to understand how the boomers became boomers and where the counterculture originated. A good place to start might be Marshall McLuhan and Neil Postman. While the boomers might not be the first mediated generation, They were the first when mediation occurred at the speed of now, and therein lies a clue. Mediated America. That could be an entire episode. We'll touch on more of it in future episodes, but you can learn a bit about it in episode number one I mentioned earlier in the program. Generation of sociopaths. Hmm, maybe. But Gibney's great value is in providing insight into how the new left generation morphed into the most conservative generation in American history. George Will would argue that they're not conservatives in the true, Burkean sense, and he'd be right, the pun intentional. Still, hearkening back to our opening question, the counterculture won, but not in any way someone getting down in 1968 could have predicted. Oh my God. If that mythical someone had said that Richard Nixon would be the last liberal president, at the least they might have been laughed at, at the worst they might have been, who knows what they might have been. They, however, would have been right. Bruce Cannon Gibney lays out how we got from I want to teach the world to sing to I got mine, I don't care if the rest can sing. From a world enthralled with science racing to the moon to a world of anti-vaxxers, science deniers, and suggestions that drinking Lysol might cure COVID-19. To quote Jerry Garcia, Gibney provided the map to what a long, strange trip it's been. Trucking, got my chips cashed in. Keep trucking, like the do-dog man together. 
presidency the hardest job in the world? Who knows? But it's a ferociously difficult job. It's a job that might need to be reinvented. Americans could start by asking themselves in this age of performative politics, which candidates are talking about real policy and which are staging phony crises, like gas stoves, to distract the people from the real issues of the day. In short, Americans should ask who is talking about the real job of the presidency and not just posturing the curry favor with cable news junkies. In fact, one thing Americans could do to improve the presidency, to improve all of our politics, is to cut the cord, kiss cable news goodbye, drop out of social media, and read. I hear myself saying that, and I know it's the right thing to do, and I also know, well, I also know it's not likely. Did the boomers break America? No. But as they exit the stage, they have a lot of cleaning up to do. Today we did something different. We looked at issues in the American tapestry through the lens of two books. John Dickerson's The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency, and Bruce Cannon Gibney's Generation of Sociopaths, How the Baby Boomers Betrayed America. Next month, we're going to do something similar. We'll look at the American Tapestry's Freedom's Fault Lines, Tales of Race and Gender, about how those first excluded from the American promise fought for inclusion by appealing to America's foundational values. We're going to do that by examining former Attorney General Eric Holder's Our Unfinished March, the story of the struggle to gain and to sustain voting rights. Voting rights. You'd think it'd be a given at this late date, but no, there are still those sounding false alarms about voter fraud seeking to disenfranchise people of color and those with whom they with whom they disagree. We'll also begin a new multi-part series, Sporting America, Games Americans Play, and how those games and how they're played, how they shine a light on the American Tapestry's major threads. The American Tapestry rich in its many threads and stories, challenging 21st century Americans to remember our ideals and to live up to the better angels of our natures. I'm Andrew Roth, scholar in residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening. Remember, past episodes can be found on the WQLN website, Spotify, NPR One, Google, and other podcast sites. Comments and questions can be sent to me at roth at jeserie.org. Thank you.